There will be two scripture passages for this morning. Um, the first one's in the worship guide, but the second one isn't. Um, the first is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Grace and peace, hope, grateful to be with you again this morning. I'm sure some of you, uh, like I often do, uh, come into worship and, and feel the weight of our broken world. We live in, in this time where um, war seems endless and the toll of lives taken senselessly uh, feels almost unbearable. To drive the streets of our city is, is this stark reminder that, that there are so many people that are in deep need. And the nature of persistent sin is, is everywhere around us. There's always just more sickness and more death. And, and this is why actually this season of Advent is such good news for us as our broken world has been given shalom. Advent is, uh, of course, this tradition, broad questions that are drawn out of the scriptures and intended to, to celebrate this season of waiting. And the word Advent comes from a Latin term meaning the coming, which is why at Advent we look back to the, the promised first coming of Christ, but we also look forward to the coming yet again. New Testament scholar uh, Harrison Warren says that to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic sense of aching. 
that our deep, wordless desires for, for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. So more than, than lights in the yard at night or gifts under the tree and, and even the meals that we share with those that we love this season is about the Christian longing for the very presence of God. You know, when, when I was growing up in church, like most of you, uh, we do Christmas music in church as well um, during the time of year. And my favorite song was actually one that I thought was actually pretty weird. Um, the, the very first verse was real short and sweet. It just says this. It says that there was a baby boy born in this world of sin, born just to die for us so that we could live. And then the chorus would say, uh, I'm glad that he died for me. And he gave his life just to set me free. I'm glad that he died for me, born just to die for me. Uh, I was uh, in Denver, Colorado all of the past week doing some training uh, with pastors in RUF from all over the country. And one night after dinner, we decided to go see the movie Napoleon. Um, I, I recognize he's a pretty controversial figure. And I absolutely hated the movie. Don't recommend it at all. But... Um, <laughs> Something was striking to me as I saw the movie. It was the very nature of war itself. It had these images of, of competing armies coming to face to face with one another. There were guns drawn and, and soldiers on, on horses with swords and there were cannons ready to be fired. And before the fighting would begin, there, there'd be some guy always with a motivating message to encourage them to fight with vigor and this promise of great rewards to come. And somehow it reminded me that there is a war for our soul that rages. Our enemy leads an army at work to kill, steal, and destroy our lives. And day after day, his cannons hurl at us a bombardment of pride and greed, pornography and deceit, racism and disunity. And yet, this army is wholly defeated, not with more guns and swords or cannons, but with the birth of this precious baby boy. This boy who was born into this world of sin, born just to die for us so that we could live. So I'm so glad that he died for me. This baby born just to die for me. Uh, the series, though, you've been working through has these images of heaven brought about by the narratives of Advent. And I want to continue that by answering what it means to to cultivate shalom. Uh, shalom, of course, means peace. Uh, it's this state of wholeness and tranquility. And still, if you need a more concrete definition, uh, I actually found it be helpful knowing that scripture uh, is actually more of a pervasive concept that seeks to, to highlight the relationship, one that is built on love and loyalty towards God, but it also, of course, demonstrated and the relationships that we share with others. Um, our God is a God of peace, and the author of Hebrews uh, identifies him in just this way, writing that now may the God of peace, 
who brought about again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of our, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Yet, um, when what is even more thought-provoking is the way that the prophet Isaiah identifies Jesus as the source for which the peace of our world comes. He writes, he says that the people who, who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And you have multiplied the nation, you have increased his joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior is in battle to moat, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. To know Jesus is to know shalom. It's not something that our world can give us, so it is definitely not something that our world can take away. And yet again and again, I watch the lives of believers wrestle with the lack of shalom. Shalom, though, speaks to the entirety of our well-being. It's about the prosperity and completeness of a life in Jesus. It contradicts this notion that to live our lives in shalom is, is, is not about suffering, but shalom is true peace despite our suffering. And as I thought about this sense of shalom, I realized it comes across as often unspoken narrative deeply interwoven into John's gospel. Uh, John, in his prologue, makes uh, this uh, can't-miss description of Jesus as the very word of God, the one who is from the beginning with God and though through whom all things are made. He is the life and light of men, the light that shines in the darkness. He's the one through whom the world was made, through, though the world did not know him. He came for a people that did not receive him, but for those who have, he's given the right to become the very children of God. He's the God who dwelt among us, and, and through him comes grace upon grace. It's in him, friends, alone that we find true shalom. One of the beautiful realities of being a Christian is, is the freedom to live with some sense of imagination. It's no wonder historically Christians have led our world in artistic creativity. 
with everything from uh, the art and ancient places of worship to the literary beauty of, of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress or C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that in the Christian imagination point us towards the gospel. Know, though, that even in the Christian imaginative state, the glorious beauty of heaven is all about living in the presence of our great God. See, these images of heaven give us a picture of life in communion with him. It's from these images of heaven, though, that we're asked what it means to cultivate shalom. Uh, to cultivate is, is to prepare or to foster something that requires a persistent sense of work. Uh, in my work on campus at Winston-Salem State, our mission statement is this. It, it says, we are to cultivate the kind of family that Jesus introduced to our world. And we use this specific language to point us toward the diligent work of pruning and tending, not only to a life of faithfulness in Jesus for ourselves, but also to see the gospel at work in the lives of others. Look with me, though, at this image of heaven in John 14 and see what it means for, for us to cultivate shalom. Because in the first verse, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Um, John 14, of course, is continuing the discourse from, from the chapter before it in 13, where um, Jesus is preparing the disciples for what is to come. He washes their feet. He tells them he's going to be betrayed and arrested. And he also foretells that even Peter, the staunch defender of Jesus, actually is going to be one of the first to deny him. This news comes with some incredible disbelief. And it's then to them that Jesus says, actually, let not your hearts be troubled. The word trouble here in the original languages means uh, to be stirred or agitated. Uh, the heart, though, speaks to the core of our being and the worries we, we carry. Worries about our children and our finances, uh, the sensitivity towards any threat of our security. And it reminds us that this call to let not your hearts be troubled is a message equally imperative to you and I as it was the disciples in this room. How do we not let our hearts be troubled, though? It's by resting in Jesus. Jesus calls those who followed him to believe in God, but to believe also in me. And not just as a suggestion, but as an explicit command for exactly how it is they are to respond. And notice, though, that Jesus moves from the acknowledgement of their anxiety to an exhortation, then into a promise. So let not your hearts be troubled is an acknowledgement. But to believe in God and believe also in me is an exhortation. An exhortation is to urge or encourage someone to come near. It's a call to not only know someone, but to know them with intimacy. Admonishing and encouraging them to pursue with urgency this kind of belief that Jesus calls also then you and I to experience in him. We find the promise in verse 2 and 3. 
where it reads, it says, in my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So what is the promise? It's a place in the Father's house. And while, of course, it is not outside of the realm of possibility that God could provide a home for all who find faith in him, this is likely just imagery to suggest that there is room in the very family of God for each of us. And while this passage is often used to apply to the death of the believer, uh, instead this is Jesus speaking to the promise of the second advent that you and I celebrate this year. How, though, does Jesus prepare a place for us by being sent by God the Father to be born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man, the only Redeemer of God's elect, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures, and one person forever. He is he's the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the beloved Son of God, our chief cornerstone, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, Jesus is the shalom we long for. Verse 4, though, says that, and you know the way to where I am going. Uh, Jesus doesn't waste time explaining anything again or teaching anything that's new. No, Jesus says, uh, you already know what this is. Jesus is not going away for his own benefit. But he does it for us. See, in Jesus' death and resurrection, he gives us all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus, in his glorious majesty, moves along the path that went through the cross into the tomb, risen on the third day, and on the high ascension, guarantees salvation for his people. So what is the way? It's Jesus. We trust him knowing that he alone is our salvation. And to everyone who lives a life of faith in Jesus is the promise of eternal life. Uh, you can't earn it or buy it. You can't live a good enough life to merit it. You can't do anything to deserve it. But it's only because he alone is worthy. And in case you still have some questions that Jesus is the way, look at verses 5 and 6. Because Thomas said to him, look, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, um, before I was a pastor, I, I was a teacher right here in Guilford County uh, at Eastern Guilford Middle. Uh, it was time for my evaluation for the year. My principal, uh, of course, came into the room to sit in on the class and observe. And so I put together this incredible lesson on onomatopoeia. 
I know for some of us it's been a while, so know that this is speaking to when we use words that sound the way the action suggests, like the pitter-patter of little feet or the buzz of a bee or the chirping of birds that connect things like writing and music is what I wanted to achieve. And so we had students take instrumental music and write lyrics using onomatopoeia to create song lyrics. And by the time I got finished with my lesson, I was sure that every student in the room absolutely understood what this was. I'm sure that's all the educators laughing. Uh, because uh, they are smart enough to know that that was the absolutely wrong assumption. Because we got done just a few minutes before the bell was the ring and my principal was telling me, hey man, how much he enjoyed the lesson and the way students were engaged when this little kid we call Lil Kenny, his hand went up in the back of the room. We called him Little Kenny because uh, he was small in statue and, and most of the time he'd actually just be in the class uh, trying to get some little girl's attention, but at least on this day with the principal in the room, I, I thought he was with me. Again, clearly I was mistaken because after the lesson and everyone in the room was starting their homework to get some of it in before the bell rung, Kenny's hand went up and he asked the most profound question you had, had actually asked in that moment. He said, Mr. Hooper, what is Anaman, Anaman appeal? You ever had those moments when you just turn into a Kung Fu master just? <laughs> Thankfully, Jesus isn't like Mr. Hooper. because I wanted to strangle little Kenny. <laughs> but you know, when, when this dude named Thomas, after spending years walking with Jesus day after day, seeing Jesus heal and raise the dead, give sight to the blind and live a life of sinless perfection, he had the nerve to say to Jesus, Oh, I don't know the way. <laughs> Thankfully, Jesus doesn't want to strangle Thomas. But rather, he reminds Thomas and the rest of the disciples that I'm the way. I, I'm the truth. I am the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas is talked about again just a few chapters later uh, as the news of Jesus' resurrection spreads. And he's uh, defiant and believing it, telling the other disciples, man, I ain't going to believe it till I see this for myself. And uh, I, I want to see the, the holes from the nails in his hands. And I want to put uh, my finger in his side when they were sitting in the room together and the doors were locked to the house. 
And the scripture says that Jesus simply enters the room and immediately does what? He calls them to shalom, saying, peace be with you. The hearts of disciples who were filled with fear and anxieties again are being called to peace in Jesus. Jesus and his claims that I am the way, the truth, and the life is a claim that he too is God. And the use of the definite article in his claim to be the way means he's not just a good option or one of many to choose from, but the only way to the Father is through Jesus. The next claim, though, is that Jesus is the truth. And as a pastor to college students, I've grown keenly aware that the most destructive ideology among this generation of young people is the idea that truth itself is self-defined. In the 60s, the, the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung's belief that as far as we can discern the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being has evolved itself into to live in your truth is your most authentic self. Doing things that bring you happiness and joy, living as true to yourself as possible, and the result is a world that is completely lost. The last claim, though, is that Jesus is eternal life. And for Jesus to make a claim to being the source of our lives is, is to acknowledge that our meaning and purpose rests in him. What does this mean, though, and how it is that we cultivate shalom? We got to know, friends, that, that we experience shalom by resting in Jesus. So we demonstrate this in our world by embodying with all of creation his love and his mercy and his compassion. And we cultivate shalom by living with integrity, demanding justice for all people. We serve those in need, always remembering people experiencing poverty. We treat others with equity and work to ensure that those institutionally disenfranchised know that their brothers and sisters in Christ are at work to champion the cause with virtue. What we have to know that the work of cultivating shalom is reflective in both the already and the yet to come. So we wait on him, waiting for him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. But also then we've got to know that he will return not as a baby boy, but he is coming with the clouds, with every eye seeing him, even those who pierced him, John says, and that the tribes of the earth will wail because of him. And in response to this in Revelations 1, John says, even so, amen. Let's pray.
Father, our, our hearts burn for you. We recognize the sin-sick world that we live, knowing that it's only hope, it's only shalom um, is in you. And so, Father, we, we patiently wait on you for the, for the coming of, of your sin, Son, Jesus, to, to redeem us, to, to take us out of, of, of the suffering and to live in communion with you the way that you intended. And yet, Father, in, in the waiting, I, I pray, Father, that you, you would teach us to wait well that we would endure each day in, in love and compassion with others, always at work to, to cultivate the shalom with everyone that we come in contact with. That we would ever and ever be changed. And Father, we thank you for doing this great work in our lives. In Jesus' name it is we pray. Amen.